I just finished reading a short but excellent book entitled Littlest Suffering Souls, Children Whose Short Lives Point Us to Christ. The author is a man named Austin Ruse. Tells the stories of three very extraordinary children. Audrey Stevenson, who had leukemia and who died at the age of seven. Margaret Leo, who suffered from spina bifida and died at the age of 14. And Brendan Kelly, a Down syndrome child who also had leukemia and died when he was 15 years of age. Here's how Austin Ruse describes what these children had to face during their very short lives. He said, what strikes you first about their stories is how much these children suffer. We are talking about intense and long-lasting physical and mental pain, excruciating suffering, the kind that would make a Marine call out for his mother in his final moments. Both Audrey and Brendan received invasive treatments of chemotherapy, steroids, spinal taps, and eventually bone marrow transplants. They lived long stretches of their lives without immune systems, where danger lurked behind every errant microbe. Margaret Leo had titanium rods inserted into her back in order to slow the bending of her spine. Instead, the rods bent. To this day, they sit on her father's office desk to remind him of what a bad day is really like. Audrey's parents had to order her to talk about her pain so they and the doctors could help. Margaret would rarely mention her pain and mostly smiled through it. In the deepest pain, Brendan tried to make his parents laugh so they would not worry about him. Most children are not like this. We adults aren't like this. Now, in many ways, my brothers and sisters, they were very normal children. Brendan, for example, loved sports, and he also loved a good party. Audrey loved to play with her friends and her sisters. But at the very same time, these children exhibited an extraordinary faith an extraordinary faith in horrific circumstances, as well as a deep love for Jesus and the sacraments and the Church. And their faith got noticed by a lot of people that they came in contact with, including many people with big jobs in the federal government. And that's something really important to note. That's because Brendan's parents and Margaret's father know lots of powerful and influential people inside the Beltway. Brendan's mom and dad once worked for President Bush in the 1990s, and Margaret's father is vice president of the Federalist Society. That's a group of lawyers and law students in Washington, D.C., which includes some Supreme Court justices. In fact, one of those Supreme Court justices actually keeps a picture of Margaret on his desk. To this day, he has that picture on his desk. That's how inspired he was by her faith and her witness to Christ. 
All of this illustrates the point I want to make, which also happens to be one of the lessons we learned from the gospel parable we just heard from Matthew 25. And the lesson is this. What matters most is not what you've been given. What matters most is what you do with what you've been given. Brendan, Margaret, and Audrey were all given a cross a very heavy cross to carry. They could have responded to that cross with hatred and anger and self-pity and despair, which would have been understandable given the intensity of their suffering and pain. But instead, they chose to do something positive with it all, with what they had been given. They used their physical crosses to grow closer to Jesus themselves. They used their crosses to inspire others, to encourage others, and to help other people through their offered-up sufferings and prayers. Prayers, incidentally, which had some very powerful effects, including, apparently, some physical healings. As the author Austin Roos put it in his book, God placed these little suffering souls in these places and in this time for a reason. And one of those reasons is so that their stories can touch the souls living in the grand houses of Great Falls, Virginia, that's where Brendan lived, McLean, Virginia, that's where Margaret lived, and Paris, where Audrey lived, and beyond, including now westerly Rhode Island, since you have now heard their stories, too. Which brings us to the parable we heard a few moments ago, the parable of the talents. One footnote here as I begin. In first century Israel, a talent signified a weight, which means that talents differed in value depending on what they were made of, either gold or silver or copper, normally. So obviously a talent of gold was worth more than the same weight of copper. We're told in the parable that the first servant was given five talents by his master, the second was given two, and the third was given one. But that's not what's most important in the story. What's most important in the story is what they did with their talents. As I said a few moments ago, what matters most is not what you've been given. What matters most is what you do with what you've been given. And the third servant did nothing, which is why he was condemned by the master. The other two used their talents, they used what they had been given, and they were rewarded for their efforts. This parable reminds us, first of all, that there are two kinds of sins that we commit in this life. There are sins of commission, that's when we do something evil, something we shouldn't do. But there are also sins of omission. That's when we fail to do something good, something we could do, something we should do, something God wants us to do. Most people, when they go to confession, incidentally, only confess the first kind. That is to say, sins of commission. Very few confess sins of omission. And yet they're just as common. If we fail to defend our Catholic faith, for example, when we could easily do so, we commit a sin of omission. When we know somebody is being falsely accused of something, and we stay silent, 
we commit a sin of omission. When we fail to pray regularly, daily, we commit a sin of omission. When we fail to say thank you to somebody who does something nice for us, we commit a sin of omission. That was the kind of sin the third servant committed. Notice, he didn't do anything that was grossly immoral. He didn't use his talent to buy illicit drugs. He didn't use his talent to pay for a prostitute. He simply did nothing with it. That was his only fault. But obviously it was a big one. It was a big one because that talent was given to him with the understanding that it would be used. The parable also reminds us that God expects us to use our talents, here meaning our gifts, for his glory and for our neighbor's good. Some of us may have many talents, many gifts of this kind, like the servant in the story who had five. Others may have less. But remember, the quantity doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to God, as it didn't matter to the master in the parable. What matters most is not what you've been given, one talent or a hundred. What matters most is what you do with what you've been given. So what are you doing with your talents? Let me close this morning with the words of a song. Words that I came across earlier this week online. These words caught my eye because the last line of the refrain of this song is similar to the theme line of my homily. The song's entitled, What You Do With What You've Got. And the refrain goes like this. It's not just what you're born with. It's what you choose to bear. It's not how big your share is, it's how much you can share. And it's not the fights you dreamed of, but those you really fought. It's not what you've been given, it's what you do with what you've got. Like those three children, Brendan, Margaret and Audrey, may we use everything that we're given in this life, our gifts, and yes, even our crosses, for the glory of God and for the good of our brothers and sisters. Amen.